Clear. background noise throughout the day but it's just airplanes so it's not it's, it's not really noise. good background noise yeah right. this is this is the best seat in the house that's right we got sky riders now we got sky riders, we got sky riders now. now does that say you can't i can't it's got a runway in the front yard <laughs> and you're in sight clear west turkey central ground good afternoon sir taxi via foxtrot and alpha All right, there, uh, 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 um, where are we here? Simulator in your living room. Yeah. yeah. All right, this guy is clearly not married. <laughs> at the present I had that time. Thought. I had that thought too. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking maybe he, he doesn't date much either. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, you know, I mean, percentage wise, you're probably right. But. The fact of the matter is, I've met, I know, and and recently have met others um, who are in wonderful pro aviation relationships. All right, um, David, Annie would let you have one of these in your living room, right? Take over the living room. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. If we, if- and I met Mike Flies from the uh, from the uh, uh, Mile High Flyers podcast uh, when I was in Las Vegas, and his wife Elizabeth. I bet she'd let him have one of these in the living room. She's a pretty cool about aviation. Um, okay. So you know. I, I think it could, you know, you could have one of these and a girlfriend, right? Okay. Well, I'd probably let somebody have one of those in my living room. In fact, I'd probably be the person who put one of those in my living room, but I'm really not typical. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm not either. I, 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 I wouldn't mind having one. I yeah. Don't think I'll, I, I know. don't think I'll want it in my living room. I might build a separate, you know, structure for it or... Or we, on we, a room or something like that. We've actually wow. had the conversation in looking at uh, some of the uh, uh, computer gaming hardware that's out there. We'll come across it at the store or a show or something like that. And I, wow, you hook that up to your PC, you play it on your large screen, high def television, or better yet, a special yeah. display. But and then it moves your ass all around when the stick moves. Yeah. Kind of, now, I should explain for, really cool. for, uh, for the benefit of the listeners, I should explain what, specifically what we're talking about here is a YouTube video that uh, I guess Jeb came across that shows, well, the, the video starts out on what looks like a regular old suburban street out the front door, and he's kind of panning around the neighborhood showing that it's your everyday neighborhood. And then he turns around, and he opens up his own front door. He walks into the living room, and he turns the corner into the living room, and what we see is... what looks to be an incredibly full-featured, um, everything short of full-motion 737 uh, uh, flight deck. Uh, and uh, very, very impressive looking. Um, I didn't yeah, watch the whole I, video. Does he actually operate, yeah. it, operate it at any point during the video? Or is he, he has other videos. Around? He has other videos. I watched one of them the other night, uh, a video of him landing the aircraft, or excuse me, the simulator. Uh, it's, it's that realistic. Uh, at uh, Hong Kong's Kai Tak mm-hmm. Airport. Now, I wonder if this is the same guy, because we had, I think it was a listener um, who posted some pictures of his sim- simulator, and we talked about it ages ago, back in the you know mid-60s or something on the podcast. And uh, um, I wonder if this is the same it one. It might be. It might be. And, and, and we, we cut up and we joke about it, but, but this is, is you know, quite an achievement. I, I, yeah. I, I love to, you know, where did he get the components for this? I know. Uh, That's what, a good question. 
what hardware is driving this? I mean, uh, uh, what software is it using? Um, how much does this cost? Um, and know, have you looked into putting the living room on a motion platform? <laughs> and, and, and I will, I, you know, Lee and I will come out and we, we'll get some hydraulic jacks and, and uh, we'll figure out some, some electric pumps and, and stuff like that, some stepper motors and stuff. And, oh, and, man, they, they, they use jack screws now. Really yes. high speed electric motors and jack screws. And the guys that uh, I know at Flight Safety and uh, Simuflight that have flown these new electro- electric drive ones, they say they are so much smoother uh, and quieter. And it's, they even get a little bit more range of motion because of how they can set them up. It's like, wow, mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. So, because we can make fun of this guy, but the truth of the matter is that if any, if this was in any one of our neighborhoods, we would be knocking on the front door with a six-pack oh, yeah. of line and kugels in our hand, all right, you know, saying... Six-pack, yeah. six-pack, I'm bringing a case. A case, I know, yeah. All right, so what's the, what's the coolest simulator that each of you has flown? This is what I want to know. Start with, I don't know, David. Uh, well, that for me would be a toss-up between a B-1... B simulator at McConnell Air Force Base and a uh, uh, a uh, Saab 340 simulator in Linköping, Sweden. Oh, and holy crap. Were, I can see where both, this is. They were both motion simulators with big widescreen videos and and, uh, and 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 a pilot who was nowhere near used to the difference in reaction time that it takes when you're flying turbines and hundreds of thousands of pounds. Right. I can see where this is going right now. I, I just really want to be an aviation journalist when I grow up. Uh, <laughs> Jeb, what's the coolest simulator you ever had a chance to fly? I can't, I can't uh, hold a candle to, to Dave's experience, but uh, it would be a Diamond, Diamond Star um, twin um, simulator. Uh, I guess it would be a Class 3 or Class C, I guess it is. Um, simulator down at Naples, actually, Naples, Florida. Um, did a um, did some research for a uh, magazine article a couple of years ago, and uh, went down and actually flew the airplane. You know, uh, uh, put about forty five minutes on it, thirty minutes of which was on one engine, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, motoring around. Nice airplane. I love the airplanes. The Garmin one thousand panel and and uh, uh, diesel engines on the on the real thing. And I would presume uh, the semi flu had the, had the, was configured for diesels uh, at that particular point. Um, flew pretty much like the real airplane. Of course, you know, sims are always a little bit quirkier than the real airplane um, for any number of reasons. But uh, that, that's probably the coolest thing I've, I've mm-hmm. flown standing, mm-hmm. sitting on terra firma. Okay. That sounds like fun. Yeah. yeah. Amy, how about you? Well, you know, I have flown some interesting simulators, though not the B-1B, I can tell you. Um, However, I think I had the most fun laying on my belly flying the right flyer simulator. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, of all the sims, and I've had the chance to fly the big hydraulic uh, guys, and, you know, uh, I had had a blast, had a friend who did maintenance on the Simuflight Dallas sims in the 80s, and would let us in at night because we had to find what they were complaining about. We had to get the sim to repeat the problem, and so we basically could fly all night. You know, um, and had a very good time. 
um, in Citation 3s and Learjets, you know, stuff like that. But uh, it was that right flyer that was, I mean, that was a real challenge. And Oh, yeah, that was so atypical in control architecture. It's like nothing compares. Yeah, yeah I, I remember watching um, people try to fly that. This is the one that was at AirVenture, Amy? Yeah. Yeah, and I remember watching people try to fly it, and almost no one could successfully fly it. Um, I, I don't know yeah. whether it was... I mean, do do we believe that that was a realistic simulation of the actual thing? I know we don't probably. Well, oh. they had they had uh, a couple of different programs, and you had to tell them whether you wanted the dampened program or the real program to to get anywhere close to the realism. You were going to say something, Jim. Yeah, I was going to say there's there's a reason the Wright brothers, you know, could only fly like a hundred feet at a time. The well, thing yeah. Was, yeah, it was basically it was inherently unstable. Right, but uh, they eventually managed to get it to fly racetrack patterns and things like that. And, you, and not the original flyer, though. I don't think. Not the original no. flyer. No, uh, not that, the lay on your belly one. Uh huh. Okay. That that one got destroyed at the end of that first day, and the next one was re- refined. The the control architecture was somewhat refined from the first one, mm-hmm. and then next thing you know, they got people sitting upright with. You know, sticks and pedals and chairs and all sorts of stuff. I guess about the right B. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, cool. It, you know, it, they had headphones and, you know, and an iPod and everything. It <laughs> took Glenn. <laughs> it took Glenn Curtis to put the tail on the wrong end, and after that, the die was pretty much cast. Yeah. There you go. Just for the record, uh, the coolest simulator I ever flew was like I don't know, Microsoft Flight Simulator on a PC or something like that. I want you guys' lives. Well. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, Falcon uh, uh, 3 or Falcon Gold, I forget which one, uh, which I always thought was very cool. Um, but, uh, you know, Dave kind of, you know, burst that bubble for me. I did meet a guy at one of our brunches recently who said that there was a possibility that he could score me a ride in the, um, not the flight deck simulator, but the refueling in the tail simulator for one of these. Oh, do it. In yeah. a KC-135? Yeah. yeah. Um, that'd be kind of cool, huh? To try and fly that boom out there and try and hook on to uh, Absol- uh, whatever, Ab- you know. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. How many quarters do you have to put in there? <laughs> I would imagine <laughs> plenty O quarters, yeah. Plenty. So, anyways. Well, there you go. Flight simulators uh, in, our, in our living room if possible, but otherwise we'll, we'll take what we can get. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode uh, 100 and now. Oh, I'm, I've lost track here. What is this? 95. Is it's, the, it's the Cessna Tail Dragger episode. There again. we go. 195 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. Recording this episode on uh, Wednesday evening, July 7, 2010. Uh, and uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar is a whole bunch of my good friends. First of all, uh, Jeb Burnside is out there talking to us from uh, somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How are you doing this evening? I'm well, just uh, frazzled. Uh, a lot going on, a lot on my plate these days. I, I hear that in addition to aviation at Hidden River, you're going to be taking up boating soon. It's like raining a lot down there. And, uh, yes, yes. We're, we're collecting gopher wood and uh, separating the animals out into twos. Um, uh, it, it has been very good reference. I like it. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. It has been raining uh, quite a bit, um, but today actually uh, not a drop, mm-hmm. uh, which is good. We need to kind of dry out and sort out and things like this. So the, my swimming pool is um, at the rim and has been for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, I know that other people are going to hear that and say, "Oh, yeah, I know, poor, poor baby, baby. <laughs> poor baby, your swimming pool." Yeah. Uh, 
Also joining me here in the hangar this evening is Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from uh, Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. How are you doing? Well, uh, I'm feeling really lucky that they built this flood diversion channel around Wichita back in the early 50s, yeah. mid-50s, because we had so much rain over the holiday weekend. How much did it? that the river that runs right around our neighborhood would be running through our neighborhood right now. Man, that would be nasty. That would be ugly because, yes, you are surrounded by this river. and uh, it's, it's the highest. We've been here 19 years. We've only seen it this high a couple of other times. And it's been up that high for about three days now. Mm. So, and what's uh, the forecast? Is the rain still going to continue or is it going to get a chance to go down? Uh, we're, we're down to scattered evening and, and night time thunderstorms mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. not the uh perpetual rotational waves of a dying tropical storm which was what got us over the holiday weekend the perpetual uh, rotational waves of a dying tropical storm and also joining us here in the uh, virtual hangar this week is amy Laboda, who's talking to us from fort myers florida hi amy how are you I'm just ducky, just ducky. I have to tell you that as much as he complains about the rain, I can tell you we did not have the heat because we had the rain. So really in the summer in Florida, all you get is your pick. You want it hot or you want it wet. You maybe can have hot and wet. (laughs) I'm convinced this is the wettest place on earth. Yeah, this week. The Amazon jungle is the Sahara, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> we uh, really don't get that much rain a year. We get 60-some inches of rain a year. We just get it all in the summer. 60 <laughs> inches of rain? You just throw that out like, you know, yeah, we get 60 inches of rain, you know, but... Uh, <laughs> But we, yeah, we get it all in one month, and that's, you know, so we yeah. get it over with. And uh, Well, they're, all, they're only months. six feet above sea level, so they're I constantly know. at risk of being a foot underwater. Yeah. Uh, I after, happen to be 15 feet above sea level. That's quite a feat in this go. town, so I, I, I'm proud I, that's, of it. Shortly, shortly after I moved here, I was talking with a friend, and, and she's talking about, well, you know, when the rainy season gets here, and I'm like, what do you mean when the rainy season gets here? What do you call this? <laughs> and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I am talking to you from UCAP Summer Headquarters, high atop Lookout Point in uh, 100 in the shade and just incredibly humid Nottingham, New Hampshire. We're having a heat wave up here. Having a heat wave. David, sing the song, please. People uh, up there don't know how to deal with it either. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, we don't get we don't get it as 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 much during the summer, but we get humidity all the time. This was the big thing when I came back from California. Was the shock to me was that after twelve years in California, I would lost my tolerance for humidity, and so it makes me miserable. I hate it. And uh, it's one of the big California is plenty humid. It's just not nearly that hot. No, and not yeah, well. No, not, it's not. <laughs> no, no. In the Bay Area of California, it's very dry, and uh, um, so, anyways, it's, it's more I than enough. All that water. More than yeah, really. Al Gore, please pick hey. up the white courtesy phone. It's <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. been but, that way for a long time. But you don't have to pay taxes like Californians. Just think of it that way. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's it has true. gotten a little nuts out there since. Uh, yeah. Anyways, so uh, let's see. <laughs> that's enough. More than enough weather talk. We got to move on here. Uh, last episode or two episodes ago or whatever it was, we spent the first half hour talking about non-aviation stuff. I could just feel people throwing their iPods against the wall. Um, <laughs> Let's see now. Uh, one loose end from a recent past episode. Uh, I dropped the uh, and Amy's new. Maybe she'll know the answer. Um, we got to talking about the uh, the the geeky fun movie called Real Genius, 
and uh, and I challenged people to tell me what was the aviation connection in the movie Real Genius. Any guesses? I, I didn't see the movie. Okay. Um, the thing that we found of note about the movie was that they made a great big container of Jiffy Pop popcorn and then shined a laser on it such that the popcorn billowed out of the seams of a house, not unlike the hangar in uh, Teterboro that had the foam system oh. go off. Oh, boy. Okay. Anyways, the aviation connection um, was that uh, the lead character in Real Genius was played by Val Kilmer. And, <sighs> and Val Kilmer right. was one of the lead characters in Top Gun. See? So it's sort of like a... That's, that's, that's more of a cinematic connection. As well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a, you know, what's his name? Uh, uh, sep- six Degrees six of Separation. Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. Kevin right. Bacon Except thing, right. Yeah, yeah, there you go. See, so that's the connection. Which is three degrees of bacon and eggs, which is four degrees of an egg omelet, which is five degrees of a cheese omelet, which is... All right, okay. somebody's got to stop him. <laughs> there's no stopping him. We've been doing this since the late 50s, and there's just no stopping him. Cool uh, airplanes, uh, iCub, iCub, the LSA Bush plane, its website says. And uh, they're, uh, I, I don't know, I, I think of Dave as being our, our uh, although I shouldn't, obviously. Amy, you're the LSA person. Are, are these new airplanes, or this is just a collection that they've gotten together? Or what's the story here? These are kind of cool-looking little airplanes. Who knows well, something about them? Well, I think Dave knows more about it. David? Well, I kind of follow this end, uh, you know, my, my, my roots being stuff that didn't require a license. The closer I can get to not requiring a license, the more affinity I feel for it. And uh, this is from uh, uh, Sport Air USA Limited Company up in Little Rock, Arkansas. And they're importing a, a, a European-made Cub clone. They've got four models a classic, a cruiser, and then two iCub models. One equipped to fly in the bush with big tundra tires and a heavy-duty shock mount for the iPad that's in it. The two iCubs are both equipped with a big panel-mounted iPad. Yeah. Loaded with yeah. software, GPS, two, two charts. Of and two of them. Two models, yeah. Yeah, does that explain why they're $10,000 more? Than the cruiser. <laughs> Wait a minute. The well, the iPad version is ten thousand dollars more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the base iPad iCub is ten thousand dollars more than the cruiser version. Uh, and I couldn't explain that difference for you, Amy. I sure yeah. couldn't. I've looked at what an iPad cost in the dock and the software, uh, and I guess I should, probably should have looked more closely at the side by side equipment list and all that. Uh, but they range in price from a classic uh, from this company, seventy-seven nine. Yeah, that's, that's an eighty-horse Rotax. That's not bad at all. That's not not bad at all. all. That's a set. That's an eighty-horse Rotax equipped, basic classic Cub clone. Uh, the Cruiser is a little more fleshed out. That's eighty-two nine. So about five grand more. The I Cub jumps ten grand to ninety-two nine. And the Bush I Cubs ninety nine nine ninety nine ninety nine ninety five no uh, ninety nine nine. It just intrigued me that this is like the third company building uh, unabashedly uh, imitations of old J threes. Mm-hmm. 
Uh-huh. And there's a couple of other companies out there building airplanes that are the equivalent of the same thing, but with different refinements, a different look, and calling them different things. Yeah, and I don't understand. All in the same price range. Yeah, I don't understand, though, because a J3 can be had for under $20,000 if you look. Thank you. My point exactly. All right. I, 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 well, I, I, right, there, right there is the point. What's that? There's an element of humanity that only feels good if it's new and improved. Well, maybe. I'm not sure if the new premium, though, is worth four times the cost. That, that's a subjective thing. It depends on what you see when you look at your bank account. Yeah. I, I do acknowledge that as LSA prices go, these are good prices, all right? And this They're is very, very, very typical and, uh, in, you know, you know a, a bargain, if you will, um, given the pricing of other LSAs. I just still scratch my head every time I really think about LSA pricing because I'm not sure how, uh, you know, you know, I, like she, like you said, I, you can go and buy a Cub for 20K. You can buy 152 for 20, 25K. You know, you can buy basically the same kind of two-seater airplane for much, much less money. I can find you 10 starter airplanes, some of which will be LSA compliant, some of which will not, under 20 grand. I can find you 10, give me five minutes. I know. So yeah. why is the new plane premium of four times the cost reasonable? It's new. It's new. Okay. It's new. I, 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 Jack, say it, Jack, say it I'm, over I'm not, and over. I'm not trying to jerk your chain. No, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I'm not sure if it's that valuable to me, the new okay, thing. Okay, let me but, rephrase it this way. It's not 60 years old. Yeah, but we, I, I hear you. I hear you. Think, it's still, I, think, it's think, still boggles think my about, mind. Think about, the, think about the average Joe and Jane out there who's not already addicted to 100 low lead and can name all the Weather Channel personalities on site, even outside of makeup, and put them into the people that buy, don't take this wrong, who are standing in line to buy an iCub, uh, iPad, uh, who are upgrading their phone every time there's a new iteration, uh, who are driving uh, a Japanese luxury variant of a familiar brand name, and then you take them out to look at an airplane and say, yeah, man, it's a classic. It was built in 1937. And the first thing in their brain is going to be nothing freaking last 63 years, uh, 73 years, 83 years. No, no, no. Can you show me something that was built after I was born? No. Better yet, show me something built after my parents. No. Make it my grandparents. After my gra- Can you show me something that was built after I was born? I hear you. How much are these airplanes going to sell for when they're 10 years old? When the, when the used market for these things develop, how much will they drop? Will they drop half? That's, not a, that's, that's a fairly easy question to ask. Go to tradeaplane.com and look up you know, a CT. Mm-hmm. And I'll do it right now. All right, you do that, and we'll... Uh... So these are price aside. These are cool airplanes. I do like the They're look cool of them and uh, and and the design and the styling and the 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 concept and so forth. And, and, um, and taking nothing away from you know old sixty five horse Continentals and, and and all that, but building these with eighty and hundred horse Rotaxes is a, and you know, electronics in the panel. Yeah, yeah. exactly. No, they're. Uh, they're you nice. know, row taxes are getting up to 2,000-hour TBOs, eliminating one of the old arguments against row taxes. Uh, they'll burn 100 low lead or auto gas. Uh, 
eliminating another argument. Um, and they weigh less, which means that you can put more in the airplane pound for pound. Yeah. So, They're not even that finicky about ethanol if you keep it under 10%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amy, you used to have a Rotax in the Kit Fox, right? And then you we did, and we, you, but it was a two-stroke. That's the first thing I got to explain to you. It was oh, okay. a five eighty-two two-stroke, and two strokes and four strokes are not the same I animals. See. And so that is that one of the factors that played into your decision to change over to the Jabiru? It was a huge factor. Um, that and the gearbox. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jabiru is a four-stroke direct-drive engine. Right. It's air-cooled. So when you take the simplicity of an air-cooled, direct-drive, four-stroke engine and put it up next to a water-jacketed, geared, two-stroke two engine. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and what, 15 less horsepower in the two-stroke? Yes, that is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, there was less horsepower. So we go a little bit faster. Um, and really, it, we climb about the same because we use different prop. We had a three three blade. We're back to a two blade. What was um, the weight difference? Nominal, because of yeah, the water jacket. Right. You, you didn't have to have heat exchangers. You didn't have no. to have radiators. No, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's gone now. Uh, the the biggest pain in the rear end was that the Motor mounts change the um, the arm, I guess would be the best way to say it. Sure, sure, sure. And the so the battery, was, yeah, the, yeah, so the center of gravity swapped around and we had to put the battery in the back to counteract that. Mm-hmm. And we had to redo the cowling. Cowling didn't fit anymore. Yeah, yeah. I still, by the way, have warm fuzzies about that airplane ride you gave me and uh, and a uh, little little bit of stick time. That was a fun flight. Uh, I, you know, I I don't fly that. I you know I I talk you know I compare myself to Jeb and Dave as being a low and slow flyer, flyer low and slow flyer. Easy um, for you to say. Yeah, no, but uh, but that was a whole different experience. Putting around at you know at uh, you know six seven hundred feet off the ground, and uh, it's just a whole different. Uh, View of it, the ground. It, it is the definition of low and slow when yeah. you get in these airplanes. And that's another question you have to ask yourself when you're talking about spending $99,000 on something that's going to go low and slow or spending $25,000 on something yeah. that's going to go low and slow and burn mm-hmm. three or four gallons an hour, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. While so. while we've been while we've been talking here, I've been uh, working out a little bit with trade applying. Yeah. Any a, luck? A, a fourth year uh, old CT, um, whatever. Uh, I'm sorry, flight design CT SW something like that. Yeah. The cheapest the cheapest one out there was listed at seventy nine five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How I much again? Seventy nine five. Seventy nine five. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what they sold for originally, but I'm thinking upwards around one twenty. Mm-hmm. The early ones were in the one teens. Okay. okay. And uh, of course, that's optional depend uh, option dependent somewhat. But uh, mean- meanwhile, meanwhile, mm-hmm. um, I click click around a little bit more, and here's a 1946 Piper J3 C65 with 75 horsepower, only 25 horses less than the CT or or the I Cub. Uh, 12:40 total. 12:40 total time. Wow, since since rebuild, I'm sure. 
240 cents major overhaul, Seekonite, new slick, seal struts, complete restoration in the mid-80s with a new wood spar- with new wood spars. Very original, 25,000 firm. Look at it. Golf Tango. Fox mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the cheapest one out here, though. Yeah. The cheap, that's the cheapest uh, J3 out here. Um, and a 75 horse to boot. That's only five horse below the standard engine on these uh, on these Cubs. From, on these uh, I-Cubs, that's right. right. Well, uh, and that, let me explain like something like. about how they, they list the Rotax horsepower. They're talking about the horsepower coming out of the engine. But depending on how you have mm-hmm. to bend the exhaust to get it to go out, you will lose horsepower. Our Rotax 582, we checked it, was really only making 4850 horsepower. There's also the issue of um, losing horsepower in the um, reduction drive. Yes. That's where I thought you were headed. Well, I'll buy losing it in the reduction drive, too. But um, what we were told is wedging it into the Kit Fox cowling, you had to do some interesting things with the the exhaust, and you lost horsepower that way. Hmm. That's very interesting. Hmm. Okay. Well, moving from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, so give me a reality check here. Is this the same one, or is this... so uh, there's a story in the news recently about how Congress is trying to uh, finally pass an FAA re- reauthorization bill, and they continue to struggle with this whole challenge. Um, and is this the same reauthorization bill that we were talking about four years ago when we started this podcast? You yeah. betcha. Well, no, it's not, is it? Yeah. Not exactly. It's, okay. it, it, it's been massaged a lot. Well, well, my point is they have not pa- successfully passed an FAA re- budget in four that's, years. That, that's Correct. true. That's true. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the same effort to establish a long-term FAA authorization and funding plan uh, that has been in limbo for four years. And this is, if I remember correctly... The fourteenth continuing resolution that's keeping the doors open. The fourteenth since the last authorization expired in two thousand eight, when they started trying to reauthorize in two thousand six, two thousand seven. So I've only been paying attention to this kind of stuff for a few years. Is this par for the course? Does it always take this long to get a reauthorization? No, no. 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 Just since we got really flaky about it. Just just since we started this podcast, actually. Uh, you know, <laughs> I wonder, maybe we have some influence. I don't know. It's, this is really weird. What, I, you know, at the risk of, no, I'm, this will just move us into a political conversation, and we don't want to have that. They're, they're, I guess they're making progress. And I mean, what's been the effect of this, if any? Have, has, has FAA been hurt? Have, have, no, I don't care if FAA has been hurt. Have pilots no, been no, hurt you, by this you, continuing you, resolution you, thing over you, and over you again? You need to care whether FAA has been hurt because that, in turn, uh, is not good for the rest of us. Yeah, it's had an impact. Uh, they haven't been able to commit to some long-term uh, funding on some projects. They've been able to continue to fund others. Uh, but not knowing in a definitive manner or a definitive quality what their funding stream is going to be and what Congress is going to let them play with over three, four, or five years at a stretch uh, makes it really difficult to do the kind of long-term 
continuing movement that's needed to keep them from being criticized by their own inspector general for not doing a good job with the stilted on again, off again flow of resources that they've got. So, yeah, it has an effect. Jeb, Amy, thoughts? It it uh, it has an effect all the way down the 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 line, and I agree with you, Dave. What's good for the FAA is actually good for pilots in the U.S. Uh, we have to; they have to have a steady source of funding. They have to be able to look out five and ten years and know that they can complete a project. And a lot of the problems, even with next gen, have come about because they don't know that the money's there. To do it, how do you how do you get contracts? Mm-hmm. Well, when it comes to contracting, the FIA will find a way. <laughs> okay, Jeb. <clears throat> Not that I'm cynical. Anymore. Jeb, the idealist. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, any uh, any final thoughts on this subject, no, Jeb? No, I think Dave summed it up, and and and, uh, and uh, Amy put a cap on it. I, I uh, clearly um, the FIA continues to exist. Clearly, uh, they are fulfilling their role. Um, and in fact, you know, they, they've come up with some innovative, I won't say innovative, they've come up with some interesting, uh, um, changes to their, their normal, uh, uh, activities of late. They're, they're, they've expanded, uh, a lot of their outreach, especially their electronic outreach. Um, they've, uh, done a lot of good work with the, uh, uh FAA Aviation Safety Magazine. Um, they've done, as, as Amy can attest, uh, a lot of interesting outreach uh, via their television studios in, uh, up in Lakeland. Absolutely, absolutely. <clears throat> but even there, they've been plagued with um, the vagrancies of inconsistent funding. Exactly. And that, that was where I was headed. Um, think of what they could do with a consistent budget and, and consistent funding and uh, um, a, a, a laid-out uh, well-conceived and, and uh, finalized plan for the next, you know, pick a number, three, four, five years. Um, they could do a lot more. And mm-hmm. that's, to my way of thinking, what the problem is. There's lack of long-term planning. There's lack of, of um, uh, program implementation because no one knows what the future is going to bring. To a great extent, that's, you know, uh, I don't know, a bug or a feature of, of federal budgeting. Uh, but it's certainly a bug when it comes to um, keeping this agency um, and any other agency for that matter, but keeping the FAA tied to continuing resolutions and uncertain funding as it has been for, what now, three, four years. Mm-hmm. It's no way to run a train, uh, no, no way to run a railroad, it's no way to run an FAA, and it's no way to run a government. Well, it's one of the same points that was made again and again and again about making the administrator post a fixed term instead of a, by definition, at the will of the president. Uh, you know, we had a spell there where we were getting at a new administrator every, it seemed like, every 14 to, 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 to 18 months. And, of course, every new administrator would come in, and the first thing they need is a status report on where all these programs are so the new guy, new gal, can decide whether things should continue on their current course. Uh, to use Jeb's phrase, that's no way to run an FAA. So back a little over a decade ago, Congress passed legislation that made the administrator's post a fixed five-year term. Not five years from the expiration of the last person's term, but five years from when you're sworn in. 
the idea being that up to that point, most FAA reauthorization actions were for five years. My biggest gripe outside the length of time that this has been taking is that as it's taken longer, a lot of lawmakers want to cut down its effective date and make the period shorter on the theory that it was only supposed to have been a five-year authorization we're two years into using CR, so we really should only do it for three years so we can start this dumbass process all over again two years earlier than we normally would. Yeah. And if, and if oh. some, elect, some elected official seriously suggests that that in and of itself is grounds for voting against them. That's that's hokey. That's that's the, the, the stuff coming out the ass end of the bull. <laughs> <laughs> We, we call that blowing snow around here. <laughs> yeah, you call it whatever you want. I can tell you, it don't taste good, and it's brown, and it burns fine. <laughs> well, two of the three of those I could attest from a firsthand experience. Yeah, but. okay, that's enough. We're, we're moving on. <laughs> um, Another subject we've talked about forever on the podcast and, and in hangar flying in general is uh, what are we going to do about 100 low lead? What's, what's in the future for aviation fuel? And one of the, uh, one of the I don't know, one of the, I guess I would call it one of the more encouraging, uh, promising uh, alternatives, uh, proposals, was the swift fuel. And now there's a story that's come out in the last week or so that has got got my alarms going off. Um, let's see now. This is from a story in uh, AvWeb. Um, although it was introduced three years ago as primarily a renewable biofuel based on cellulosic, cellulosic technology, Swift's 100SF Avgas replacement will also be competitive if made from more conventional petroleum sources, according to the company's David Parham. Um, so they're suddenly now saying, well, let's, you know, it would really be great if we made. I know this just kind of bugs let, me. This let, let, me guys ask, let me interrupt and ask a question here. No, go ahead. Since, since when is natural gas a petroleum source? Well, it, but it's kind of the same thing. I, well, I mean, I know they both can come from holes in the ground, and it's, it's not it's renewable. A high, and it's, it's a hydrocarbon. It contributes to uh, greenhouse yeah. gases. Yeah, you know, I they you know Swift Fuel got its big buzz because it was a very promising fuel that was going to come from a biosource all right and although they hadn't quite pinned down what biosource was going to be best that was fine they were working on that i i first started to get suspicious of this whole thing back in the spring um when when i was talking to these folks at sun and fun and and when i discovered that the samples that they were showing they had they had little little beakers of of swift fuel and the samples were made from petroleum, all right? Mm -hmm. and, and to me, that was backwards, all right? Normally, the way these things work is that you make your early samples from bio because that's the one that, you know, but it's not practical to make large quantities from, from the real technology, but you can make little, little lab uh, samples from it. Well, they couldn't even make lab samples from bio, and I'm going, what the heck is going on here? Why, what, why are they not making even samples out of bio sources? And now they're kind of trying to, I don't know, maybe I'm not being fair to them, but it seems like they're trying to change course here. And they're saying, oh, well, but, but you know, this is like stone soup or something. I don't know. It's, uh, am I crazy? Or is this, does this not oh, no. set off today's, any alarms today's anybody else? Stone, today's stone soup now has more fiber. Yeah. Um, does anybody else think this is a little suspicious that they're changing course like this? 
Well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that it's suspicious. Um, it's a little. It's a little unnerving to me because I know from having uh, been up to Embry Riddle and spoken with people that a lot of Embry Riddle and Abfuel's um, involvement in this is be- is simply because it's a biofuel, and they want something green and renewable. They want to go in that direction. Right. Um, however, I also think that this might be swift fuel thinking, maybe we do need to have an oil company involved with us in order to be able to make this happen at all, because they are a little guy. Yeah, it, it, it could be that. It could be simply that um, um, the um, ability to process the, the cellulosic feedstocks and and develop that uh convert that into the the swift fuel i i would guess that the infrastructure out there is not developed as perhaps swift might have liked and they're like everyone else watching um the this newfound um uh, uh impetus within the industry to come up with a solution come up with a replacement for hunter low lead and they're thinking well you know if we need to get, you know, if we need to start putting out leaders of this stuff, then uh, um, maybe we should be looking at an alternate uh, feed source to, for the for the conversion process. And natural gas is is certainly available. I mean, they're they're literally burning it in the Gulf as I speak. Yeah, uh, really. So you know, uh, I can see that you know maybe they're looking at uh, how to get their recipe on the market uh, and ensure that it has, uh, there's adequate supply of it without waiting on the cellulosic industry to, to ramp up and, and develop its own infrastructure. That I can see, and I don't know that that's the case yeah. here. Uh, I, but, I think uh, you make, I yeah, you make the point, man. I, I am finished. Go ahead. Okay. David? Well, just about to, you know, I'm, I'm patting Sheb on the head because I think there's some reality there. I mean, going back, I'm I'm looking at a couple of old articles, 2008, 2009, where the Swift Enterprises people up in West Lafayette, Indiana, talk about using biomass and other renewable feedstocks to make this 100 SF that they're they're promoting. They got, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they got approval for their Swift fuel at, for, as a test fuel back in December. Uh, the original feedstock they were talking about, like Amy's talking about, is green. It uses an algae-growing process, which takes carbon out of the air and creates a feedstock that can be refined into the fuel itself. Other products out there, petroleum, one of them, and natural gas being one of them, have the same chemical makeup as what the algae produces. And in We've been hearing a lot in the last year, year and a half, about how plentiful America's natural gas supplies are. Yes, that's true. If you could, Chi uh, Boone Pickens, back during the campaign two years ago, was talking about how relatively easy it would be to convert the highway trucking industry to running on natural gas instead of diesel. And the bottom line is natural gas is much, much lower in carbon content than petroleum-based fuels. It does not take 
carbon out of the air to use natural gas the way the algae does. But as a transition to being able to grow enough algae stock, because this algae stock refining is got a lot got a lot of traction in a number of areas. But it's going to take time. It's going to take years for the infrastructure to grow up, for the producers to grow up. It takes very little water, very little electricity, and the sunlight, the acreage, can be reproduced in vertical cells rather than horizontal cells like algae-growing lakes. That's how they could put like 10 acres of growing algae-growing uh, uh, space in a half an acre building by stacking this stuff vertically. Uh, it can all happen in time. In the meantime, we still need a hundred low lead replacement. And if refining swift fuel out of natural gas, which is lower than in hydrocarbons and petroleum, would get us a step toward getting rid of a hundred low lead and put us on a path to an approved fuel, you know, why the frack not? Okay. Well, can I suggest one more thing here? Yeah. And that's uh, one hundred UL. And 100 UL jumped into the picture, what, six, eight, ten months ago, a year ago? And perhaps Swift Fuel has decided that just as Higdon has, has said, uh, we need to move quicker if we want to have. Are you thinking, are you thinking uh, um, the, the, the gamey fuel? Or the- yes. Okay. Yeah, 100 UM yeah. <clears throat> or GU or whatever it is, GL. Yeah, but but the point being, perhaps they've sat down and said, uh, "We we we need to come up with something we can move on faster." That could yeah. well be too, uh, and that's that's kind of my point. Is is there's a we're starting to get to a critical mass here on uh, the industry um, dragging itself, kicking and screaming to the threshold of coming up with an alternate to 100 low lead, um, and uh, now that there's another player with some, uh, I would. I would say both expertise, credibility, and track record in bringing Absolutely. Uh, uh, um, what might otherwise be, you know, uh, um, pure magic uh, to uh, this market. Uh, and I'm talking about Gammy. Um, Swift is saying, "Hey, well, maybe you know, we we this this pine sky and the green stuff is is all well and good, and we can still do that down the road. But uh, if uh, uh, G1000 UL is." Uh, G100 UL is the um, the new standard. Uh, uh, we're going to be standing out, you know, in the rain. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's plenty of it around here. All right. Uh, well, go ahead. Jim. I don't know. I mean, uh, but but the punchline is for me is that it's always good, you know, in this instance, especially to have some competition. Uh, unfortunately, um, it looks like everybody's decided that we only need to, we we have we must excuse me we must settle on one uh solution and there can't be more than one solution i think I that's bull I, I, well that's that's where a lot of the the quote brain trust is going unquote uh and i'm i'm not sure i agree with it either um Wait a minute, haven't we had this conversation before? And, and you and Dave both said no we got to pick I've, one i've come around to your to your position since then i i I I understand on one level and, and understood on 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 uh, the same level when we were having this conversation, um, uh, what the challenges were, and, and I was kind of in that camp uh, at the time, um, but uh, I do see where a lot of the uh, uh, powers that be, as it were, uh, are wedded to this idea of only having uh, one fuel. 
it's strictly for economic reasons. It's strictly to to and, and liability reasons. Um, but if it's the same basic fuel and it complies with the ASTM standard or a subset thereof, um, and there's a lot of that ASTM standard that that you know kind of is, is is nice to have, but not necessary to run you know a TIO 540J2BD. Uh, which is the the engine in the in the Piper Chieftain Navajo Chieftain, which is kind of the worst case scenario. Um, there's a lot in that ASTM standard that you know makes that engine run fine, but it's not necessary, and it will still run fine. And that's you know the the, the lowest common denominator, as far as I'm concerned. Um, in, in this coming up with an alternate fuel thing, is there has to be a fuel on which all of these engines will run. Um, you can't say, well, you know, we can come up with a, a, a 94 octane fuel, okay, but oh, you know, there's, there's 30% of the engines that are going to need modifications. I'm sorry, that's not sufficient. You haven't done your homework. You haven't, go, go back home, go back and sit down at the drawing board and finish the task. You've not completed the task. Mm-hmm. Well, not only that, but let me tell you, the more players that come to the table on this, the more ASTM certified fuels we get out there, the more choice we have, yes, I agree, there'll be some confusion, but I'm telling you, the more creativity, the more innovation you're going to get, and the better ultimate solution you're going to have. I I agree. I agree. agree. And and I think we need a fuel that comes to one standard. Uh, Agreed. If if, if it it comes from multiple sources, if it comes from multiple sources and multiple processes, um, I think that's a marvelous idea because the competition can only serve to help us out and probably bring the price down. Oh, yeah. I, I could care less that I have to buy X fuel if I'm in Idaho and Y fuel if I'm in New Hampshire. As long as it meets the same standard, it can run in my engine, and it doesn't matter if it mixes. And frankly, that's what the ASTM standard says. That's right. It's like Phillips versus Gulf versus Shell versus America, whatever. They they all have their own little blends and stuff, but it all meets a certain standard. And you can mix it. You can, you know, light your charcoal with it and stand back um, when you do that. But, yeah, okay, fine. Sign me up. Okay. And and the the nice thing about what's been tested out of the Swift fuel so far is that it actually has a higher octane, effective octane, than 100 low lead. And a higher energy content than hundred low yeah. yeah. So when you start it's, hearing it's slight, about prices of five energy. bucks a gallon, yeah. uh, you're going to have to factor in the the, uh, the the ability to run on slightly less fuel into the equation on whether it's a an hour by hour, mile by mile bargain. Right, guys, we're already paying five bucks a gallon average for av gas. Yeah. Yeah. Average. Yeah. yeah. Okay, obviously a very interesting subject. We're going to talk more about it as time goes on. We should move on here. Um, You're saying we should get the lead out? Oh, uh, the lead out? (laughs) So, Amy, one of your former students had an adventure. What happened here? Yeah, I'm not so sure if it was an adventure as it was um, a lesson. Uh Uh-huh. Tell us what happened. A learning Uh, moment? A learning moment, a painful learning moment. Uh, He was flying his new experimental airplane that's still in its 40-hour fly-off that he 
had yet to really get a checkout in. That he's he's a sport pilot. He has the tail dragger endorsement, but he was less than current. Mm, okay. And he made the decision that he just couldn't stand looking at it anymore, and he wanted to fly it. And he took that upon himself to go fly it. And this is a decision that many builders who are builders more than they are flyers have made in the past and had similar kinds of results. Um, He had difficulty landing the airplane. This is often the case. (laughs) You can get it off the ground. Yep. The transition away is so much easier than the transition back. Yes, and we haven't left one up there yet, so (laughs) we know you're coming back. So what ha- uh, what happened, well, Amy? He's he survived the first flight fine, and so did the airplane. And everybody was quite surprised to hear that he'd flown it, and um, gave their their huh, okay. Well, um, you might want to think about you know if you're going to do that again, you might want to think about blah 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 blah. Um, well, being that the first flight didn't scare him enough. Oh no. <laughs> Yeah, he went back for more and continued to have a lot of difficulty with the landing and made the decision, and I suspect that um, he might have gotten a hint from another pilot. I don't know that for sure. Again, I was not there. This is someone I have flown with in the past. Um, But, yeah, my name's definitely all over his logbook Um, and had given him good advice. Uh, But... He finally decided, I guess on the fourth time around trying, that he was going to try landing in the grass. That's fine. Not a bad decision at all. Um, But the way he says it, he was a little high and a little fast and really, really wanted to be on the ground. And after the first bounce, he could pretty much hear that instructor in his head going, Never let the stick come forward. Uh-oh. But and he didn't heed this advice? Was, the ground was right there. And you know how bad you want to be on it. And so he pushed when he should have pulled. Uh-huh. And, and you to, know what happens next. To quote Astro on his check ride, row. Yeah. <laughs> what did happen? Well, he was on the ground rapidly thereafter, unfortunately upside down underneath his crushed canopy. Mm-hmm. Because and when you let that stick come forward in a bounce on a tail dragger, you run the distinct risk that your next move is that your nose is going to go forward and into the ground. Mm-hmm. And when your nose goes forward into the ground, particularly on the grass... You, That's really short final. Yeah, yeah, well, the good news is you're going to come to a rapid deceleration. And you're going to get what you wished. And it was grass. And it was grass. And he crawled out from underneath and shook himself off and went, oh, yeah. Well, that would explain why she says never do that. Yeah. Um, and the first phrase is, oh, man. Yeah, well. 
with a, with a short expletive attached. It was a very pretty airplane, and it is repairable. Um, what's that? Hey, he was working on it the last time. Yeah, really. uh, to 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 shield him from undue <laughs> publicity, I will I will leave out what kind of an airplane. Short that it was a tail dragger, <laughs> and it was sweet, and it was only about twenty hours into its forty hour fly off. He Can got you... that far into it when he. No, he had other people fly it. Oh. These were only his first and second flights in this airplane. Gotcha. He got tired of seeing other people flying it. And, yeah. oh. and this is this is something that everybody needs to take away that it's not worth it from. Sure. It's not worth it when you've put years of hard work into a project. To go out there and try to do it yourself when you're not ready to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not worth yeah. it. When you know you're not current, go spend $150, $300 and get current with an instructor. Yeah. When you know you've never flown the type of airplane that you just built, do whatever it takes. Go wherever you have to go. To get some time with someone in that airplane. Was this airplane two place? Yes. <laughs> okay, Amy. Um, but you can't you can't have two people in it during its fly off. You realize that? Yeah. No, I know that. I know that. Yeah. Amy, I hear obviously a lot of of sadness and stress and distress in your voice here um what's it like as an instructor in general to have i I don't know how to ask this delicately have have you ever lost a former student no i have not lost a former student this is probably as scary as it gets Mm -hmm. um because i saw what that machine looked like and fortunately i knew that that had happened before i saw what the machine looked like because that's never fun um, and if you've ever had a friend in a really horrible car accident and then you had to go with them to like get the stuff out of the car mm-hmm. or God forbid, even worse, they're in the hospital and you have to do that. It, it's very akin to that as you sit, you know, quarterbacking it on the back side. Um, it helps to have that person come to you and say, I heard your voice telling me not to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I knew not to do it. It's like that homesick angel express syndrome. Yeah, yeah. It's every, the classic. Every, every cell in your body knows better, mm-hmm. and then you do it anyway because you just got to. Well, and there is the syndrome of getting yourself up in the air and wishing you were on the ground. And we all know that it's better to be on the ground wishing you were in the air than in the air wishing you were on the ground because that's the kind of scenario that sets up this kind of ending. Yeah, You're right, and it, it's much harder to deal with the latter than it is with the former. <laughs> oh, just the paperwork isn't worth it. Yeah. For, forget, yeah. forget the ego, forget the, the potential injury, forget having to go home and tell the wife you know, that you dumped all this money into this project and now you just, you know, took it for a dip in the mud. Um, you know, it, it, well, it's we're, not- glad, we're, 
we're glad your former student is okay. Oh, yeah. we're all glad that that this person is unscathed, other than than self esteem, and um, that can be repaired. And I really, honestly hope that what the the FAA, in its ultimate wisdom, decides to do is send him for remedial training, because that's the right thing. That's what he needs. Yep. He needs to be current, and he knows it. Do you think they're going to try to do an enforcement thing against him? I, I I don't know why they do an enforcement. This is an honest accident. Right. He had every he had every right from a ninety day perspective to be in the airplane. You know, um, well, if he, he wasn't no illegal. If he had no passengers, as long as he had uh, a BFR, he's legal. That's exactly right. He didn't even need one of those. His his ticket was still fresh enough. But if my he, point. If- if they're even involved, it means somebody dropped a dime. Well, somebody no, made a phone call. No, no uh, it was an accident. It, sounds, it, sounds it like was a, officially an accident because of um, the damage to the accident? airplane. Yeah, it was a reportable accident. Ah. And that had to do with control surfaces being damaged and the interpretation of the local FISDO. Got Every FISDO's hmm. got something different. The airplane itself didn't cost 25000 so you can't look at numbers. So, uh, you know, I asked the same question, and it came down to a control surface was damaged. And if a flight control surface is damaged, that can be considered an accident as major damage to the airplane. Not to I'll mention the engine has to be torn down. Um, but but this is, you know, an educational kind of thing because a lot of people would look at that and, you know – people get away with much worse um, in terms of damage versus, you know, exposure. Uh, That's neither here nor there. But when you do this on a public airport, then the, you know, newspaper comes out and takes a picture of it. You know, you got a problem. Yeah. You're in trouble, man. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Glad you're glad your former students. Okay. Lots of lessons to be learned there. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope that the takeaway is is stop and think before you decide to go go fly something that maybe you're not ready to fly yet. Shout outs. Uh, I've got the first one here. Uh, I give a shout out to uh, Amy Laboda, who has been named to the American <laughs> Air Campers Association advisory advisory board. Oh wait, Amy, Jeez. this is you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. What's the deal here? They are a great group of people um, based here in southwest Florida. Don Abbott uh, started this this wonderful association based on the fact that people like to camp with their airplanes. Now, mm-hmm. yes or no? True or false? Wait, what? What's, th- that they people like to camp? like to camp with their airplanes. Sure. Look at the North 40. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look at the North 40, look at all of these um, wonderful recreational areas in the in the Northwest and um, in the in the Midwest. There are actually I think it's six or seven hundred airports that actually have areas for camping right on the airport in the U.S. alone. So on um, a time, every sun and fun and every Oshkosh was a camping trip. Yes, once upon a time, exactly. I, too, have camped under the wing of my airplane. Um, unfortunately, it was a rainy sun and fun, but it was still fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. 
<laughs> little soggier. But um, the the idea was to unify and provide information so that people can find and um, preserve their their rights to camp with their airplanes, um, preserve the strips that a lot of people like to go camping on, uh, particularly the more rural ones, and to uh, provide a means for finding the um, accoutrements of camping. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, of, of custom equipment that can make your airplane camping experience even more fun. Yeah. So what is it a, like a membership organization? Can you it join? It is a membership organization. You can join uh, the Association.com. Let me see. Aircampers.com, I think is what it is. According to the article I'm reading from, it's AmericanAirCampers.com. Air AmericanAirCampers.com. Thank you for the correction there. And, You're absolutely uh, right. And if you join um, right now, you get this terrific um, tin cup with the, with the D-ring clamp that you can clamp to your backpack or your mm-hmm. hip pocket and uh, a bunch of other really cool stuff that comes along with it, a patch that you can put on your EAA jacket. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a fun group. And besides which, uh, I like where they hold their, their advisory board meetings. You know? Where, where's which that? It's around a campfire, of course. Oh, okay, yeah. Oh. That's great. That's great. Yeah, well, congratulations oh. to you, and congratulations to the organization for snagging you. Uh, and it uh, looks like a cool organization. Everybody should check it out. Um, I'm looking at the story about this from the uh, GA News, uh, the GeneralAviationNews.com website. Um, it's a very nice picture of you, Amy. This is a, uh, oh, thank you. It wasn't uh, really an air camper kind of picture, Yes, yeah, so I, I was going to comment that uh, it's, I, I don't often, if ever, see you wearing girl clothes. And uh, it's, <laughs> <laughs> there's an aviation movie reference right um, yeah, uh, but uh, very nice picture. Very nice, uh, very nice picture, Amy. And, well, thank you. I do have a couple dresses. <laughs> Congratulations. That's terrific. What's know. next here? Who's got a shout out? Anybody? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, Go ahead. Buddy of mine, um, uh, David, not a David uh, on this podcast, and not a David uh, um, on uh, uh, Sun and Fun Radio, but another David. Um, who's been, uh, I might have talked about him in the past. He's, a, he's an airline pilot, uh, works for um, um, the regional portion, regional portion of a major name brand carrier. And uh, recently uh, um, spent like six weeks at, <clears throat> at school and uh, came out with a new type rating in the Canada Air RJ. Uh, been flying uh, the uh, jungle jet, the Embraer RJ, for, for I don't know, five, six, eight thousand hours. Uh, and uh, he's upgrading or, or transiting sideways or whatever they call it, and uh, uh, got his type and uh, will soon be going through IOE and uh, uh, quite an achievement. And uh, just want to recognize that for very him. cool. Yeah. What did he get typed in? Uh, Canada. Super. Excellent. Yeah. Sounds great. Congratulations to him. More um, jet than I'll ever be flying. Yeah, I right. have a shout out. Go ahead. What do you got? I want to congratulate the um, Ladies of the Air Race Classic. That's uh, at, race actually started here in Southwest Florida and went up to Maryland uh, just about a week and a half ago. And uh, three ladies from Southwest Florida won it. Cool. 
They were very nice. Yeah. They did a great job. It was a 2,000 mile race, and they were in a 182 RG led by uh, Terry Carbonell, a lawyer from Alba area. Very Very cool. Yeah, very nice. Um, I've got a shout out here. This is from. um, our our uh, good friend of the podcast, uh, Jonathan uh, Navion, Navion guy, Navion pilot. Uh, he is in fact an, a Navion fan, and uh, it gave Jeb and I rides last summer at uh, Oshkosh. He has been involved in organizing a very very cool uh, event activity that's going to take place during AirVenture this year. Um, reading from a story on the AirVenture.org website, um, EAA, American Airlines, and the Honor Flight Network have joined together to give World War II veterans the opportunity to visit the powerful memorials dedicated in their honor as an old glory honor flight will depart from EAA AirVenture 2010. On Thursday, July 29, the special American Airlines Yellow Ribbon 737 flagship Liberty will fly approximately 80 World War II veterans from the AirVenture grounds to Washington, D.C., and now I'll paraphrase, um, while in Washington, they uh, are going to be touring a number of the uh, World War II uh, and uh, various uh, foreign war memorials. And uh, this is for um, a lot of uh, great old World War II vets who, for one reason or another, aren't able to get to D.C. to uh, to pay their respects and to uh, memorialize these things. I think it's just an awesome thing. Um, to see the memorial built in their honor. Exactly, exactly. So... This is terrific. Uh, Jonathan has been uh, uh, instrumental, as I understand it, in uh, trying to get this all pulled together. And uh, he and a number of other people now have uh, have got it all together. And it's going to take place uh, on Thursday of, of Air Venture Week. And uh, uh, very, very touching. Apparently, this is part of a uh, a, a longer, week-long thing that's going to be taking place at Air Venture this year. The salute to veterans and uh, a lot of different activities. And perhaps that's what you're going to talk about, David. What do you got? Well, we talked uh, uh, in a recent podcast about our friends down at the uh, Commemorative Air Force trying to get Fifi back into the air, Fifi being the last remaining airworthy B-29. And they'd scheduled some flight testing, and then the paperwork didn't get done on time. The FAA didn't get out, finish their inspection and issue certificate. Well, we heard from them uh, today that yesterday, on the 6th of July, the FAA issued an airworthiness certificate that allows the CAF to start flying the initial flight test for Fifi. Uh, and uh, they're going to be hard at it here, uh, I imagine, very intensely now that they've got it done because the flight testing involves uh, repeated opening up and, 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 and looking at different parts of the airplane and the engines to make sure everything's working together. Fifi, if you don't remember, was down for about four years initially because of corrosion in the outer wing panels, and then the engine started making metal shavings, and it was decided that they were going to go with a hybrid of two different types of, uh, of old, uh, old round engines, old right arc 3350s. And get it airworthy with a, an engine that wouldn't cost them a, an arm and a leg and, and, and be a risk of putting her down again. So uh, that's all done. The paperwork's done. They're supposed to start flying here uh, Friday, actually. Good. And uh, onward and upward. We hope that it all goes well and uh, that we'll see Fifi out on the circuit very soon. Very cool. Very cool. Any other shout outs? Anybody? Nope, nope, Bueller? Okay. 
Hey, Amy, glad you could join us. Uh, we always love it when you hang out here with us in the virtual hangar. Uh, Amy is a uh, freelance aviation writer and the editor-in-chief of Aviation for Women magazine. Amy, where can people find you and your magazine on the internet? You can find us at wai.org or afwdigital.org. Jeb Burnside uh, is a freelance aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, jeburnside.net. I'm sorry, dot com. Ooh, boy, that's a uh, slip of the tongue. Um, uh, for my personal website, uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com uh, is one of the outlets. aea.net is another outlet. And uh, coming soon to uh, um, Aviation uh, Magazine near you. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oavbuyer.com, AEA.net, Aviation Safety something or other, Uh, DaveHigdon.biz, or do a Google and throw a dart. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. Thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and the many other listeners who have created the show opening disclaimer clips. Uh, We're also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just $10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings, webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Well, according to my old friend Chauncey, XB-29 captain and now in his very late 80s, the key to a long life is flying because, as he says, time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Ta-ta. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFM. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations with which they work. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.